0: Welcome to the People of Pathology podcast. I'm Dennis Strank. On this podcast, we explore pathology, laboratory medicine, and forensic science. With all the recent advancements in molecular pathology, there seems to be quite a bit of overlap with biotech, which of course is only accelerating the rate of innovation. Dr. Tian Yu has a PhD in cell and molecular biology, and she's the vice president of research and development at Truckee Applied Genomics. Today, we're going to talk about her career path We're going to talk about her work in molecular pathology, and then we'll talk quite a bit about a new field called spatial biology. All right, here's Dr. Tian Yu. You had told me previously that you came to the US from China at, at, I think you said high school age. Yes. But I wanted to, if we could, kind of go back to when you were a young child in China, because I'm curious about what, kind of what life was like for you there and were you, what kind of things were you interested in at that young age?
1: It's a great question. So I was born and raised in China. Uh, it's in a city called Jinan in the Shandong province until I was 15, and then I came to the U.S. Uh, to uh, move to my parents and uh, start high school. So it's it's a great experience growing up and being raised in China in you know a different culture. Entirely, because I when I was a '90s kid, so when I was young, uh, the China's economy just started to boom. So think about you know at what years the US have had landline telephones, right? Perhaps in the Art Deco age, so maybe the 1920s, 1940s. So mm-hmm. I still remember when our family first got our landline so i i was old enough to remember things at that time and i remember the excitement uh, of our whole family just getting a landline in where we where we live in our apartment so that's very unreal and you know what's even more unreal is just um around 10 years later everybody have a smartphone in their hands so it's Uh, it's very interesting experience experiencing that economic growth of China when it's really rapidly developing, right? We went from Mm -hmm. no cars on the road, dirt road to uh, very well paved road and um, there's traffic everywhere and people have to build um, parking lots everywhere. Uh, and now we have in my hometown, we have skyscrapers right next to, you know, ancient architectures of China. Uh, So it's definitely an interesting site to behold and it's a beautiful site.
0: Okay. Okay. So what was then like the education, like, I mean, you mentioned sort of the technical technological advances happening at the time. Was that happening in education as well?
1: I think so. You know, we were always uh, very much into schooling and, I, I can speak from my personal experience. I was very interested in science from a young age, but that's probably because my dad was a anatomy lecturer. So he's a very, very funny guy and he's very interesting. And when I think when I was as young as five, he taught me how to use a microscope to look at uh, just the patterns on the leaves. And he also showed me. Into his anatomy lab with all the specimens lying around, so um, that's when I first learned what formalin smells like.
0: Oh, okay, yeah, that's a very distinctive smell. You don't forget that one,
1: exactly, exactly. Right.
0: What was it like then moving to the U.S.? I mean, there had to be quite a bit of a culture shock, I imagine.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's it's very it's very interesting. It definitely there's definitely was a culture shock but uh, you know looking back at it in retrospect i think it was really a blessing uh to have those two very different perspectives because i i don't know if you read like ray dalio's book he actually sent his son when his son was 11 to a school in china where you know only natives would go to that school. So looking back at Ray, Ray Dalio's story, and then I was like, yeah, he's really smart because I really learned a lot from this experience. Having those dual perspectives, you know, at the beginning, what I what I pick up all the time is just what's different. Um, but then after a while, what it really taught me this whole experience is, you know, people as um, you know, humanity or, you know, as civilized people in the world, they're all very similar. So what I really realized are the similarities and American culture has been really great because it complements the culture in China really well um, because the culture in China is very group, group centric. Uh, so there is not a lot of individualism. And one very important thing I think I picked up, well, spending like the latter half of my childhood in the U.S. is, um, you know, I learned how to do self-love and really um, have more of an individualism mindset, and that's really helpful um, for me, developing into an adult as well.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can see how having a diverse background and diverse experiences like that would really help help someone. That makes a lot of sense. What about, um, I mean, did you speak english at the time that you, that you came over here
1: um yes and no to the question that you know if i spoke english so like i was saying uh our education in china because i i went to a pretty good school uh, growing up so i um was taught english uh, since i was in kindergarten but the education or the language education in china was very interesting back in the 90s it has Improved a lot since then. But, um, when I was growing up, I was taught how to read and write English really well, but, uh, conversation wise, not so much. So I was 15 and I first moved to the U S. Uh, and then they put me into uh, this exam, this language exam, basically, you know, to see my, where my English level lies. That's mostly in writing and reading. So I actually tested really well. uh, And I was placed directly into a a normal high school without going into or going through any language school. But, you know, I really wasn't conversational at that time. (laughs) So my first year was very interesting. But uh, luckily, I had a lot of, you know, I met a lot of good friends who took me under their wings. Uh, And after the first year, I picked up the language pretty quickly.
0: All right, then how did you become interested in biochemistry and cell biology?
1: Uh, So, well, um, biochemistry and cell biology was my major in uh, an undergraduate school, but uh, full disclosure, uh, I actually wanted to major in fine art uh, just because I was uh, sort of a fine art student when I was in high school. Okay. But all the friends that I Hannah was at that time at college, um, they were all pre-med major. Uh, so they're all majoring in biochemistry uh, and, and things like that. So uh, I was peer pressured into uh, the same pre-med major, uh, which actually helped me out a lot because uh, my friends they uh, they taught me a lot of study techniques and helped me out with my courses a lot. Um, but I didn't really start to really get what biochemistry is, or um, I didn't really start to love it until when the time comes for me to do my senior thesis research. So with my senior thesis research, I got into this um, very nice entomology and biochemistry lab. It's a wonderful lab with great lab mates. It's very collaborative nature. And uh, I have a great mentor who's a postdoc at the time, and that really taught me the ins and outs of biochemistry techniques and how to conduct research and experiment. You know, that feeling of getting some good results out of a really tricky and very interesting experiment, uh, you don't forget it once you experience it. And that really just started my passion for uh, doing research, especially in molecular biology.
0: You mentioned the uh, having a mentor, and this is something I talk about quite a bit on on this podcast. As far as having mentors, and people often have trouble finding a mentor. Uh, how did you, how did you meet this person?
1: So um, I met my um, senior thesis research mentor in in lab. Um, actually, he was the postdoc um, working under uh, this professor who's very, very established in his career. And, uh, you know, I was just a lowly undergraduate, just entering uh, the in lab and trying to learn some um, bench techniques. So uh, the, the professor, the PI at the time introduced us. Uh, and later on, I just sort of lashed down to him, uh, you know, uh, a little bit jokingly, a uh, stalker style, and tried to shadow him. And I think he wasn't very much into being my mentor at the beginning, but later on, I sort of ma- made him my mentor by uh, just trying to help him out and doing small favors, running, you know, small experiments for him, uh, doing incubations. Uh, so o- over time, he just took me under his wings.
0: Okay, that's actually a really good point. I mean, if you do, like you said, you know, little projects, little favors for someone, they they might be more likely to help you in return. So that's that's a good uh, that's a good idea.
1: Yeah, definitely. Uh, actually, that's um, something I would say to uh, my mentees sometimes as well. Because when I was young, that that was certainly my mindset, which is you know I have nothing to offer, right? So. When right. it comes to mentor-mentee relationships, sometimes it feels like very one-sided. So that might be why some, you know, potential mentees are just too afraid to ask for a mentor or try to seek out mentorship. Um, but it doesn't really have to be that way. I think uh, a lot of the people they're, you know, somewhat established in their careers, as you know, they're often more than happy to help.
0: Yeah, that's true. Okay, now now let's continue then. So then you go on to earn a PhD in cell and molecular biology. And at at that time while you were doing this, what kind of things in this field were you interested in pursuing?
1: Uh, So good question. And when I uh, entered in the field of um, cell and molecular biology, I was already very, very interested in uh, next-gen sequencing. Because um, when I was doing my senior thesis research, my mentor at the time, as I mentioned, he introduced me uh, to the technology. And back then it it was very new. Uh, Not a lot of people are doing that, even in research labs. Uh, I think that was back in 2010 or 2013 or something like that. So um, when I got into my PhD program, you know, I... I would have to say that I was very much into a um, methodology development. So I think that's how I was often described as well as a avid methodologist, sometimes to a fault. Uh, so I love to learn and I love to try and develop new technologies, uh, essays, experiments, you name it, uh, anything that's very new and exciting that allows me to use some of the new uh, new studies and new publications that can also help answer interesting questions that our lab was working on at the time. So I would always try to merge, uh, you know, new methodologies and, uh, some of the interesting topics of study, uh, in our lab, um, together. So I would actually read methodology, methodology sections, uh, in papers for fun. And then I would try to put my own spin on it. Um, I can give you. Multiple examples, but one um, that okay. came to mind is uh, you know, I actually helped implement two uh, next gen sequencing workflows uh, for sequencing epigenetic markers in human germ cells that help study uh, the interplay of circular RNA, which is a non coding RNA, and also a RNA modification called M6A in germline development. So that's something that was very new and exciting at that time. And, uh, you know, I still pat my, myself on the back um, for it from time to time.
0: Okay. So this had to be what, early 2000s, I imagine?
1: So it's, I think it's about 2016,
0: 2017. Oh, all right, okay. Yeah. Because, I mean, this field was really starting to uh, just rapidly expand at that time. So there must have been a lot of exciting things happening for you. Uh, to be interested in them.
1: Yes, definitely.
0: Did you hope to continue as a uh, career in research or or did you have other areas that you wanted to get
1: into? So research is very exciting, but um, when I was in grad school, uh, especially during the later years, I felt more of a hunger for real world impact and application. Um, so that's when I know that I probably won't stay in academia for, for very long, and I want to go into the industry and see a lot of the new te- uh, methodologies and techniques uh, realized into real-world applications and s- see them making impacts in real time. So um, at that time, I already knew I would like to get into um, the biotech industry And just to see what's out there.
0: I want to just back up for just a minute here. Now, you mentioned earlier that you studied fine arts earlier in school. And, you know, there's there's a bit of art to uh, science research as far as, you know, the methodologies that you mentioned. What sort of fine arts were you were you studying and do, do you still do
1: those things? So I was uh, very much interested in uh, just drawing and painting. Uh, so the final I was starting, studying at that time was uh, just pencil drawing and also um, painting with acrylic material and pastel. Okay. And uh, the art style I was really into is just very classical art, uh, very academic. Uh, I like very realistic drawings and paintings and I, uh, I very much like to sharpen my skill to do that so uh, and then later on just because of all the hassles with um, paint materials and art materials I transitioned into digital painting and digital drawing on um, photoshop with you know one of the drawing pads uh, it's called welcome uh, so so that's very interesting because um, there are new techniques that we can apply and sort of different types of filters that you can actually apply to your arts, uh, in real time. So I don't, unfortunately, just because of my time constraints, I, I'm not doing that as much as I would like to nowadays, but when I have more time, I really, uh, want to do, do more art, especially digital drawing. And another passion of mine is, uh, fantasy I would oh, really? love to do yes, I would love to do some fan art or even some cover art for uh, for some fantasy novels.
0: Okay, like what 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 kind of fantasy novels do you like?
1: Uh, my favorite author uh, at this time is Brandon Sanderson. I don't know if you know
0: him. Mm, no, I'm not familiar.
1: Yeah, he's really good, and you know, of course, I read the the novel version of the Sons uh, of Fire and Ice. So that's the game the oh, yeah. novel, yes.
0: Yep. Okay. That, yeah, that one, th- those, I, those I do know. So, so you mentioned that you were interested in getting into biotech. How was it that you became aware of the pathology field?
1: Given that I was working in a uh, reproductive biology lab uh, when I was in graduate school, and um, our lab is actually within um, the medical school of the university. So I was um, exposed to somewhat the research side of pathology at that time. So in our lab, when we're studying our reproductive disorders uh, and conducting experiments, so we would actually use techniques that you would also see in standard histopath labs, such as E staining, but uh, you know, it's much smaller scale compared to a standard clinical pathology lab. Uh, so as an example, we would process just a couple uh slides at a time. And uh, you know, that's basically what we would do all day, just make sure those slides are processed perfectly to get that crisp picture for publication. Right. So um, after talking to more um pathologists or pathology professionals, The more clinical side of things, I I know, you know, there's definitely a huge difference between the research side of pathology and the clinical side of pathology.
0: Could you see the application of what you were doing, like how it would apply to clinical pathology? Could you see that right away? And did that appeal to you?
1: Yes, absolutely. I I could see that right away. I think what's really appealing to me, and um, I listened to your podcast so I know it's also appealing to a lot of other uh, pathologists and pathology professionals is how pretty those slides look. <laughs> right. They they look oh, yeah, very absolutely. Yeah, they they look like they're arts, right? So that part definitely mm-hmm. spoke to me. And on a conceptual level, yes, I understood. Uh, you know how. That could be applied in the pathology field, right? Because you can, you know, you stain the slides and you can see the structure right away. And based on the structure, you would know, you know, whether uh, these look normal or if whether they look cancerous or maybe they don't look normal or something like that. So definitely. But it wasn't until I got to learn more about the clinical pathology field I would know, like, oh, okay, so this is how you actually process a lot of tissue sample. And this is how, uh, this is what you do so you don't confuse the patient sample uh, from one to another. So these are things that we are not taught in a research pathology lab.
0: All right, and how did you go about uh, learning what happens in, in clinical pathology? I mean, moving from one field to another like that or kind of an adjacent field, I guess it is, that's sort of like learning a, a, a new language almost i mean there are different words that you use in terms and jargon and things like that i mean was was it difficult to to uh, get a handle on all of that
1: um yes uh so was it difficult to move into the pathology field i would say uh, yes it was challenging at first but it was no more difficult compared to no learning any new things. So it's actually easier uh, because there are lots of teaching materials out there. So, for example, you asked, you know, how uh, do I pick up the lingo? <laughs> how to speak the same language as the pathologist? Well, uh, there are lots of YouTube videos out there, right? And PastCast is one of them. And I know you did oh, yeah. a really, a really educational um, video up there on tissue grossing. And I watched that.
0: Oh. Oh, wow. You really did. You did your research on me. That's that's interesting. Thank you.
1: Yeah. I, I mean, it's not just the research. It's a great uh, source of learning and, um, you know, YouTube video, uh, listening to podcasts, and then also just reading a lot of research paper on top of uh, just chatting, uh, interacting, and conversing with uh, actual pathology professionals. Um, that's how I learned. And I'm still learning a lot.
0: Sure, sure. Yeah, well, aren't we all? Uh, so, all right. So this seems like your sort of method is you kind of immerse yourself in whatever subject you happen to be interested in at the time and just go, you just go all in. I mean, you mentioned that earlier about reading, you know, research papers and studying all these things, and now you're doing it again in, in pathology. So that's, mm-hmm. that's interesting that that's kind of your your way of doing things.
1: Yes, just uh you know take a nosedive dive deep into the topic and
0: yeah.
1: uh, don't come out until I actually you know understand it
0: <laughs> now I'm curious Don you you mentioned earlier you said your dad was a an anatomy lecturer now did yes. what what you learned from him did that help you uh, in kind of learning pathology
1: yes yes i I learned a lot from him growing up because you know um, as I probably mentioned before i I look at myself as a very multidisciplinary learner. Uh, and that's, I, I think I took that from my dad because he is a very, very uh, avid self-teacher. So he taught himself how to drive a, a truck, for example, like a commercial truck. Uh, so I, I still remember that and that's very impressive. And he's never been been to a English speaking country, but he speaks English very fluently and he taught himself how to do that. So, um, I suppose not specifically, uh, for pathology, uh, I was actually, you know, a little rebellious growing up just because, you know, he's, he teaches anatomy and it took me a while to really, you know, kind of learn pathology and learn anatomy because he, he teaches that. But I think I, uh, a lot of his other good qualities kind of rubbed off on me uh, over time.
0: Yeah, that's interesting how you kind of you can look back at those things and think about, okay, I did learn something from him, even if you didn't realize it at the time. Yes. Um, right.
1: That's okay. the beauty of parenting, right?
0: <laughs> yes, exactly. This is the People of Pathology podcast with our guest, Dr. Tian Yu. We'll be right back. LabVine is building a team to help lab medicine professionals live their best lives. Now, these are commission-based sales positions, and the only requirement is that you're passionate about helping people, especially laboratorians. I'll have a link in the show notes where you can email for more information or just watch the LabVine social media pages. Also this month on LabVine, there are some great resources for managing laboratory finances. These topics include financial management, financial statements, budgets, controlling costs, and making financial decisions. And you can find these at LabVine by following the link in the show notes. Dress A Med has been designing and manufacturing high-quality scrubs since 1980. The prices are affordable, the shipping is very fast, and the scrubs have lots of pockets, which I really like. I actually have several sets of these myself. So check out Dress A Med by using the link in the show notes. You can sign up for their loyalty program for free and earn special offers and discounts. Now back to Dr. Tian Yu on the People of Pathology podcast. Let's talk a little bit about molecular pathology, because that seems to be your, your kind of main focus uh, these days. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned the next generation sequencing, uh, which you had been, you had been doing uh, even during your, your research career at the beginning. Right. So we, All right. Can we kind of explain what, what this is and, and then how it might be used in molecular pathology?
1: Yeah, uh, so next-gen sequencing, uh, NGS for short, in a nutshell, is a high-throughput technology used to read out the four chemical, chemical building blocks of DNA sequence from a sample, right? So what what's different between NGS and Sanger sequencing, which is often referred to as the first-generation sequencing, uh-huh. is NGS... Basically, if you want to, it can read all the DNA or all the RNA sequences sequences from the sample, right? It it doesn't discriminate uh, from sequence to sequence. Once you put some adapters on the two end of your DNA fragment, it'll read it for you through a sequencer. So it's very much high throughput uh, and also Cost-wise, it's becoming cheaper and cheaper over time as well. So um, the sample input could be DNA extracted from tissue; it could be cells, or it could be environmental sample, right? For example, soil sample. And actually, DNA uh, sequencing has been uh, applied to anthropology as well. Uh, so also for the RNA, RNA samples can also be sequenced using using a GS. So in this case, the RNA need to be first converted into cDNA uh, in order to make these uh, sequencing library, but they're very easy uh, and very doable. So uh, going to the next topic, which is, you know, how is NGS linked with molecular pathology? Well, that's a very interesting question and that goes to kind of my discovery and my journey from research pathology to actual pathology as well. Because in research pathology, if you search the papers, there are lots of research papers on new biomarker discovery. And where do this newly discovered biomarker go? Well, eventually they make it into the clinical side of things. So as a result of that, there are more and more uh, biomarkers Either it's DNA biomarkers, protein biomarkers, or RNA biomarkers, and they're emerging and they're being adapted and used in uh, in the clinical diagnosis, right? So I I think for lung biomarkers, it has gone from maybe a couple at the beginning to uh, now it could be 20s or even more. Right. And there, I think if you just look at the basic lung cancer biomarkers, there are 23 of them um, and they're mostly used. So, uh, that's very interesting because on one hand, the, the numbers of biomarkers is going up. Uh, and then on the other hand, the cost of NGS is going down. So now it's coming to a point that it's almost more economical and it makes more sense for people to do whole genome whole exome next generation sequencing instead of trying to detect uh, specific biomarkers one at a time.
0: Sort of the purpose of looking at these biomarkers, you're trying to uh, determine prognosis and potential treatment, right?
1: Right, right, exactly. It could be determining prognosis or potential treatment, and sometimes it could be uh, determining whether a treatment is effective. And because of NGS's um, very pan approach, uh, the NGS data can also be used to discover new uh, new biomarkers, right? So if I can give you an analogy, okay, the traditional single um, biomarker targeting detection, it's kind of like, you know, every time you want to look at one word, you go to the library, you look look it up, and then you come back. And you write it down and then you go back there and then you come back and you write it down again versus NGS. It's a Kindle, right? You have it on hand, whatever you want to look up, you can just look it up from uh, your Kindle, from your uh, tablet.
0: Okay, that makes sense. I, I like that analogy.
1: Right. So... In terms of applications, there are, there are a list of applications that can be done with NGS, uh, something you've mentioned already. Um, and on top of that, tumor diagnosis and tumor uh, subclassification, classification uh, And then also one of the interesting uh, applications that we see more and more of is tumor uh, cell-free DNA detection as part of liquid biopsy.
0: Oh, sure. Yeah, I've heard of that. Let's talk about spatial biology so so first of all uh, what what is this and then we're gonna talk about how how it applies or kind of is involved in molecular pathology.
1: yeah, sure so uh, with spatial biology it's a new word uh, and a new method that just emerged in the past few years. So if you think of it, you can think of it as a combination of histology and also molecular biology or molecular pathology. So, and in the sense it's the best of both worlds. So what I mean by that, so with histopathology, you have all the wonderful morphological informations, uh, on tissue cell structure uh, and localization information and how they look like on a slide. Uh, So on the other hand, for molecular pathology, you have uh, information that's sort of within cell that's not readily visible without um, perhaps sequencing or molecular techniques, right? For example, RNA expression level. So with molecular pathology, although a lot of times it's more sensitive for RNA expression, but... If you just take few slides, you grind it up, extract extract the RNA, uh, and do RNA sequencing, whatever sensitive or localized signal is going to get lost, right? Because it's it's a soup at that point. On the okay. other hand, with mor- morphological pathology, right, you don't really get that kind of information. So with spatial biology on top of a pathology slide, if you can imagine, then you can also see dozens of genes or proteins at a single cell level uh, to give you a lot more interesting and critical information about how the cells interact on a cellular and molecular level. And you can see how that could be so much more powerful compared to just histology or just molecular pathology.
0: Okay. So this is kind of a, it's a deeper understanding. I mean, you, you can, you Uh, study how genes and proteins uh, how they're expressed but this is spatial biology goes into how these things actually are expressed and interact in the body is that does that sound right
1: yes yes i think that's that's correct that's correct
0: okay and this is kind of a combination of like you mentioned several different fields with next generation sequencing molecular biology And it kind of gets into informatics as well, I suppose.
1: Oh, it certainly does. It certainly gets into informatics. So there are different approaches in spatial biology. Some approaches using um, the use fluorescent probe coupled with very, very high resolution microscopy. Uh, So they're actually able to image a lot of the subcellular molecular expressions on a single slide, which is, you know, quite beautiful to look at. Uh, In this case, you require a a very high-functioning and probably very expensive uh, microscope. Um, But on the other hand, perhaps more cost-efficient, if the equipment is not available, uh, what people can also do is use uh, localized barcode to uh, mark the location of each RNA transcript on a slide, and then they can follow that with NGS, and then later on using downstream bioinformatics to reconstruct your slide based on your RNA expression and the localization marker.
0: One, one of the terms that I've, or concepts, I guess, that I've read about when when looking at spatial biology, it's called the tumor microenvironment. So I want to get into this a little bit. What, what does that mean?
1: Tumor microenvironment. It's a new concept to me as well, but it's definitely, uh, I'm sure it's a new concept to, to a lot of people because it, it is relatively new. So what is, what it means is, you know, when you think about it, it makes a lot of sense because tumor don't exist in a vacuum. Uh, mm-hmm. there are okay. lots of other cells around the tumor that they're constantly interacting with the tumor, whether trying to suppress it or feed it, uh, or, you know, just Doing other things with it, right? So, for example, uh, stromal cells, stroma cells, immune cells, fibroblasts—they're uh, cancer-related. So, these are all the cells that are around the tumor and they're interacting with. it. So, in traditional morphology, uh, these cells may be too insignificant or too small uh, for anybody to draw any, you know, definitive conclusions out of them, and then also in traditional or you know standard molecular pathology using uh, just traditional sequencing technique these cells only are a small are they're only a small fraction uh, of the entire cell population on the slide right so their gene expression level is going to be diluted down and not going to get picked up anyhow so spatial biology is actually perfect, it's a perfect tool for these small and early signs that might have something to do with cancer cells interaction with um, the environment that's around it. And that would give out early signs for, um, for example, cancer progression and metastasis, drug resistance. Uh, It's a really big one. And spatial biology is a perfect tool for that. So I'm going to expand on drug resistance a little bit because, uh, you know, in cancer immunology therapy right now, there's a head scratcher uh, topic, which is, you know, some cancers respond really well to immunotherapy and some don't. Right. And people are trying to study that and trying to shed some light into that. And spatial biology is a perfect tool for that because it's able to both really narrow down and focus on the cancer tumor environment. And also it can tell you a lot more information how the gene expression is being regulated and how is the cancer cell interacting with uh, the immune cell and how is it responding to the immune therapy, right? Something that might not be shown readily morphologically, but on a gene expression level, uh, that response is rapid and it could tell you a lot of information.
0: Okay, and then uh, there again, I, I imagine that um, information could be used to determine treatment, right? That That's kind of the goal? Yes,
1: definitely. Uh, that would be the final goal, um, but I'm really glad that you mentioned that because uh, spatial biology and also with even with next-gen sequencing, uh, most of the most of these applications uh in the case of spatial biology i would say all of its applications is still at the research stage uh so definitely uh using it as a tool to help uh, with patients treatment or diagnosis uh would be the final goal but uh, right now i think we still need to overcome a lot of challenges uh, in order to move this very exciting technology uh, from bench top to c- the clinical side of things. So, you know, for example, something I mentioned is a very expensive cost for a fluorescent microscopy. Uh, and then also the turnaround time for a whole workflow right now is quite long. And the preservation of a lot of important biomarkers in these tissues, for example, uh, RNA, which is very very highly degradable and has a very short half-life, that could be a um, very big factor in the efficacy of this assay. Uh, Any delay in the transportation of the tissue from uh, the operating room to, to the pathology lab or over fixation with uh, cross-linking regions such as formalin could impact RNA expression right and these are some things Mm -hmm. that spatial biology still need to overcome and next-gen sequencing still need to overcome in order to be uh, widely adapted in uh, on the clinical side of things
0: so like you said this is a fairly new field and it's it you know from what i've read about it's a pretty exciting field that the potential is the potential there is huge. Are you, you know, like you've done with other things in the past, are you like immersing yourself in this and learning as much as you can about it?
1: Yes. Yes, I am. Uh, certainly. Uh, there are lots of very new and interesting researches that's coming out. And actually, we're, we have some very exciting uh, research projects underway in in our own lab as well.
0: Okay, well, let's get into uh, a little bit about that. Now, you're the chief science officer at, it's called Truckee Applied Genomics. Right. Right. Now, I'd like to talk about a couple of the products that that you have there, because this is sort of taking this research science and kind of making and and applying it to actual clinical pathology. So the the first Mm -hmm. one, there's like a trans, it's a transport media for COVID testing. Uh, can you tell me about this?
1: Yes. Uh, so at Truckee Applied Genomics, uh, we believe safety and reliable molecular testing uh, is our top priority, and it should be anyone's top priority. So uh, when it comes down to sample quality, uh, we design all of our products around this mission. And the product you asked about, it's called TAG in GPM+. Plus. So stands for neg- next generation pathogen media, uh, which is a sample collection, transport, and storage media that is designed to inactivate virus in seconds, uh, which is very important when we're spotting highly transmissive strains out there, such as Delta and Delta Plus. And now we're just holding our breath for uh, the next highly infectious strain to emerge Uh, And then at the same time on on top of virus inactivating also preserves and uh, stabilizes the viral genome material. So the viral RNA uh, and the native structure uh, of the viral protein at room temperature. So that's suitable for both molecular and antigen testing. Um, Because of this uh, unique patented formulation TAG and GPM Plus actually makes an end-to-end testing workflow possible. Uh, So this is actually one of our research projects right now, demonstrating swap samples collected in TAG's transfer media can um, be used for antigen testing right away. So you can get a test result in about 15, 20 minutes, and then it can be followed up with a PCR test to confirm the result, right? Because we know the antigen testing is less sensitive compared to the PCR sometimes. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that actually, after these two tests, it still leaves enough sample for a uh, viral genomic surveillance using next-gen sequencing. So the whole workflow only takes about two milliliters of transfer media plus sample swab. And on the risk of exposure, to live viruses, of course, is very low because uh, we have inactivated the virus, or our reagent has inactivated the virus from the beginning since um, the sample has been stored and collected in our media.
0: And then the, the fact that it's all can be transported at room temperature—that's that—that's going to be very um, useful a, as well, right?
1: Absolutely, definitely, because right now uh, we're seeing more and more. Uh, mobile testing labs, they're coming up um, just to meet the high testing demands. And these mobile testing labs, of course, they don't have refrigerators. So, so that could be very useful. And then also, uh, there's no coaching requirement during sample transportation. And what that means is it's a lot more cost effective. And uh, thinking about test equality or test equity, In uh, underdeveloped countries as well, when, you know, just testing is a luxury, let alone refrigeration, a media such as Tech GPM Plus that is able to preserve uh, valuable analyze in the sample at room temperature and also withstanding some extreme temperature changes throughout, uh, we can definitely see how that's very valuable and useful.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Okay. Something else, there's a, a formalin alternative fixative, and I think it's called TAG1. And I, w- I wanna talk about this because you mentioned earlier how you know, over fixation or under fixation with formalin can affect NGS uh, results. And it seems like, so this TAG1 fixative would kind of bypass all of that. Is that kind of the goal there?
1: Right, so uh, you are correct. So with Tag1, which is our first product, and it's uh, our founder and inventor, Tony Baker's vision, uh, Tony has spent uh, decades in uh, testing labs and he had worked with tissues and he had worked with pathologists. And one of his vision is to design a non-toxic uh, replacement fixative for formalin in uh, analytical or anatomical pathology. So, uh, just to avoid a long history of problems with, uh, natural buffer formalin based or alcohol based, uh, tissue fixatives. And Tag 1 is also a, uh, FDA class 1 exempt general reagent. And what's really interesting about Tag 1, of course, you know, the non toxic aspect of it is already very interesting, is that it's non crosslinking while, uh, preserving the DNA, RNA, as well as, and this is very important, uh, which is the native tissue and um, protein structure really well uh, without over fixation. So it's a much better reagent for molecular pathology because it is designed for molecular biology. Uh, And it can also be used as, you know, tissue fixative in anatomical pathology that we covered, but Actually, during our research study, we also discovered new potential applications for tech one that's currently under development, uh, such as specialty sample stabilization reagents, uh, specifically for tissue RNA, and upstream of applications such as spatial biology and single cell analysis, as well as uh, applications in liquid liquid biopsy.
0: Okay, this is interesting because, I mean, obviously, formalin's been around for a, a hundred years or something, something like that. And you're, mm-hmm. you know, we're taking formalin fixed that whole process and applying these new technologies to that and trying to make them fit together. So, what you're doing here is kind of starting over and starting with a completely different type of fixative that is specifically made for the new technologies that we have now.
1: Right. Yes. So formalin has been around for 100 years or so because, you know, obviously it worked really well, what it's supposed to do. But, you know, with the um, up and coming technologies such as uh, molecular pathology, it's very apparent that formalin now is not you know, able to meet some of these needs uh, in terms of sample quality. Right. Uh, with formalin fixative, it might do really well with just overall structure of the cell and the tissue, but it might, uh, change the protein structure. And it, it also, uh, does detriment to DNA, uh, by creating a lot of artifacts that can be observed in, uh, next gen sequencing results. And also it doesn't really protect the RNA in the sample. So, with new technologies that are coming up, um, we can definitely see there will be a need for a reagent that's designed for a more round, more uh, more well-rounded solution compared to uh, just formalin.
0: We've, we've kind of we're talking about sort of what the things that you're doing currently, but I'd like to so let's kind of look back on your career so far and knowing where you are now and kind of where you started is there anything that you would have done differently along the way?
1: Well, throughout my career, which is, you know, in my mind is still just starting, uh, it's just taken off. I feel like, you no, know, I have been very blessed throughout. So there's nothing in particular that I really like to change. But, uh, you know, <laughs> speaking to my kind of sci-fi uh, interest, if there is a parallel universe, which I believe there is, I would like to do a postdoc in a clinical pathology lab uh, after my PhD.
0: Mm, okay. In, in the hopes of, of doing what with that?
1: In the hopes of, you know, really in firsthand, hand am um, trying to merge what I learned in molecular biology uh, with pathology. Because right now I'm working with pathologists and I'm developing reagents um, that could actually help pathologists. But you know, I I think it would be really interesting to gain some first hand experience, kind of working on it from within, if you will.
0: All right, now let's turn in the other direction and kind of look forward, and then this might get into the sci-fi a little bit too. Um, <laughs> so what what do you think? Uh, you know, kind of knowing what you know now and and doing the things that you're you know, the research you're currently doing, what do you think is go- going to be the future of molecular pathology?
1: I don't know what will be in the future, but I can tell you what I would like to see more in the future, which is okay. more uh, next gen sequencing with inclusion of epigenetics. It would be very interesting to see how um, epigenetics, including, you know, DNA, RNA methylation, and uh, maybe some small RNA and non-coding RNA. How those can interplay in the field of pathology, and that actually can make impact in, uh, you know, disease diagnosis. So I think the future, or I would like to see the future, uh, to be a more combinatorial approach. So um, sometimes people would say. Uh, oh, this is a technology that will replace traditional pathology. But I think traditional pathology has been around for this many years, it's certainly because it has a lot of value and a lot to offer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the future is definitely going to be combinatorial, meaning, you know, all these additional value, additional information is going to help the pathologist to do uh, their job more efficiently and more accurately and give it more uh, reliable results to people, so there there are going to be some additional key challenges on the way, such as automation, uh, and then something we already mentioned, um, which is you know with more analyte uh, that you're trying to detect, you have to think about the integrity of these analyte in your sample, right? Mm. And then also educating um, pathologists with all these new and emerging um, technologies, I think it would be a challenge, but I think it's a it's a field of avid learners. Everyone likes to be uh, educated, and everyone likes to learn more information. So it, you know, it wouldn't take long.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I I agree with that. I mean, I like you said, it, these technologies are not going to replace pathology as we know it now, but they will. I think they will change it and they will add to it, so it'll be sort of pathology plus these other areas like you said combined together
1: yes yes absolutely it's definitely something what we are already seeing in um, the research field of molecular biology traditionally you know molecular biologists they're bench scientists and they won't touch the computer and now you know me as perhaps the first generation of uh, molecular biologists with NGS uh applications, you know, I have to learn how to do bioinformatics. I have to learn how to use Python uh, and how to use a uh, Linux computer system, for example. So uh, it's a challenge, but you know a lot of people are doing it. And what's really good is uh now a lot of PhD scientists in molecular biology, they're transitioning into other fields and they're taking on more communicative roles so, uh, you know, the future pathologists, I think, will be very well supported.
0: Yeah, I agree. This, this is definitely a very uh, exciting time to be in the field of pathology. And it's, I think it's just going to get more exciting as, as time goes on. Okay, uh, Dr. Yu, this has been a very interesting. Uh, I, I really learned a lot about you and, uh, and about the things that you're doing. So, uh, D- Dr. Tian Yu, thank you very much.
1: Thank you so much, Dennis. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a blast.
0: Great big thanks to Dr. Tian Yu. Next week, my guest is Zoe Brooks, and we're going to be talking about laboratory quality control and how she believes she can make it better. Here's a short preview, and then I'll be back with some final comments on this episode. In, in your, uh, your bio, it says you're an advanced registered technologist. So what does this mean? How, how is this different from a, a medical technologist? Or is it, or is it the same thing? No, it's not. It's uh, that, at that time I, it was a two-year program to graduate as a medical technologist. But in Canada, there was the Advanced Registered Technologist degree, and for that, you had to do a literature review, you had to do a written exam in four topics, one of which was management, and my other three were chemistry, blood bank, and microbiology, and it was a lot of sort of on your own learning and you sort of created a thesis then there was an oral exam that you went to to graduate. I've said before how I really enjoy the episodes where it's a crossover of pathology with something else and this one definitely fits that description I mean it's a cross of pathology with molecular biology with spatial biology and with biotech and yeah okay some of these technologies are far from clinical use at this point because they take so long to do. But as we've seen with the advancements in molecular pathology, those things could change very rapidly. And of course, the most important thing is that all of these technologies require the input from those of us in pathology to make them practical in our workflows. As always, I'll have links in the show notes to everything we talked about today. Don't forget you can follow this show on Twitter and Instagram at peopleofpath or connect with me on LinkedIn. Thank you for continuing to share the show with others, and together, let's inspire the next generation of pathologists and laboratory professionals. This show is a member of Health Podcast Network, which connects listeners with conversations and stories about health, care, and well-being, and you can find a link in the show notes to Health Podcast Network if you'd like to check out some of their other interesting podcasts. Thank you very much for listening, and I will talk to you next time on the People of Pathology podcast.